Hello, and welcome to this Speed Listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast, featuring everything you need to know about Death Valley Ranger Stan Jones and the tale behind his hit song, Ghost Riders in the Sky, all in under 30 minutes, give or take. I'm Paul Bishop. My compadre Richard Prosh and I co-host the full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, but write solo for these Speed Listen bonus installments. Earlier this year, my wife and I were able to spend a few days in Death Valley National Park. It was my first visit, and I had a great time. I became enamored of the stark yet beautiful desert landscape, the shifting sands, the borax mines, and the history Death Valley has played in the Western genre. The visit led directly to the Death Valley full-length episode of the Six Gun Justice podcast, in which Rich and I talked at length about the many movies, TV shows, and books inspired by the National Park and Monument. One of my discoveries, however, was special enough to deserve a speedless installment all its own. I have no doubt most Six Gun Justice podcast listeners are more than familiar with the haunting country and western hit Ghost Riders in the Sky. The words and music have probably started running through your head with the mere mention of the song title. But there is a great story behind the song that I want to share with you today, including a series of serendipitous events that led Stan Jones, the man known as the Singing Ranger, to pen the iconic tune that opened the door to his remarkable career as a songwriter. While in Death Valley, I took the opportunity to visit the ranger station slash residence where Stan Jones and his wife Olive were living when he wrote Ghost Riders in the Sky. To say it was primitive doesn't do it justice, especially when you take into account the stark realities of the desert and the intense heat in the Valley of Death. The Ranger Residence is a short distance inside the entry to Death Valley National Park, near the desolate outpost of Stovepipe Wells. With its two-pump gas stations, small motel, restaurant, and gift shop, Stovepipe Wells is the last vestige of civilization before the long, long miles of tarmac leading to the two resorts nestled in the heart of the valley. It was there, however, that I found a trade paperback copy of Ghost Riders in the Sky, The Life Story of Stan Jones, the Singing Ranger, by Michael K. Ward. I attempted to contact Ward to ask him to join me for this speed listen installment, but was not able to raise a response via email or phone. However, his book on Stan Jones did provide much of the information I'm going to share with you today. A 1947 article in Arizona Highways describes Jones's birth this way. One June evening in 1914, while Pancho Villa was busy shooting up a border town, a newborn citizen lustily joined in the din from a little Arizona ranch house about 200 yards away. Stan Jones had just arrived. Stan's parents, John and Berta, had roots in the Deep South. After marriage and beginning a family in Texas, they moved to Mexico, where their family continued to grow, while John Jones worked as a clerk for a copper mining company. Civil unrest in Mexico sent the Joneses' family across the border to Douglas, Arizona, to the home of Berta's brother, Grover Davis. Born there in Arizona, Stan was the youngest of seven children. His father was 47 at the time, his mother 39. He was a surprise to say the least. He was termed an afterthought baby by one of his nephews. His coming into the world probably made up part of the catalyst for John Jones abandoning his family while Stan was still an infant. His mother would soon obtain an uncontested divorce, but discreetly listed herself in the city directory as a widow to avoid the social stigma of the day associated with being a divorcee. As Stan grew up, he spent much of his free time roaming the surrounding desert and mountains near his home, often borrowing one of the local donkeys. He also made a name for himself among his peers for his ability to tell ghost stories. 
This may have been a latent gift from his father, who had entertained Stan's older siblings by playing guitar and storytelling in his deep baritone voice. By age 15, Stan and his widowed mother were living in Los Angeles with his older sister, Jeanne, and her family. Stan found himself attending UC Berkeley in the early 1930s, riding the rodeo circuit during breaks to earn his living expenses. This was followed by a short stint in the peacetime Navy. While his time in the Navy was brief, the honorable discharge he earned would later prove to be a valuable asset. After the Navy, Stan bounced around, working at a variety of jobs, including mining, logging in the summer, snowplow driving in the winter, and fighting fires for the National Park Service. But none of these occupations seemed to strike him as a career. In 1944, however, he heard about an open ranger position at Mount Rainier National Park. Being an actual park ranger was something Stan saw as an opportunity to return to the same type of free-range adventuring he'd loved as a youth. Here was a chance to use his hard-earned wilderness skills and his honorable discharge status, which gave him a major advantage at the time when applying for the job. Once employed as a ranger, Stan found himself assigned to parks all over the western United States, a life that was a perfect fit for his temperament and interests. When World War II came along, Stan served as a field director for the American Red Cross in Bend, Oregon. While there, he met another Red Cross volunteer, a schoolteacher named Olive. They would be married a short time later. It was Olive who bought Stan a Martin tenor guitar for a birthday present. The instrument opened up a whole new world for Stan, and from then on, the guitar and Olive went everywhere with Stan as he filled the long nights of remote postings by writing songs. From his days telling ghost stories to the other kids around Douglas, Arizona, Stan had developed into a natural storyteller. Olive encouraged Stan to combine his musical talent with his love of Old West legends and tales. Following her advice, he began to transform his cowboy stories into cowboy songs. In February 1945, Stan returned to Mount Rainier with both Olive and his guitar. There, they quickly became popular and active members of the local community. Stan needed little encouragement to take out his guitar to strum while singing his ever-growing repertoire of original cowboy songs. It seemed Stan had finally found his two natural callings, rangering and music. But he was yet to discover the amazing doors those callings would soon be opening. The job of a ranger in the 1940s meant doing everything from mundane maintenance chores to dangerous rescues. During his first year of rangering, Stan dealt with a visit to the park by President Truman a post-war flood of visitors, mountain rescues, problems with bears, crowds of winter sports enthusiasts, snow removal on roads and rooftops, and when there was time, he crafted an uncountable number of routed cedar signs for use throughout the park. Good rangers needed a core of inner confidence, common sense, and a commitment to duty, as it was up to them to accomplish any task the remote areas where they were assigned might throw at them. With his diverse mix of blue-collar and wilderness experience, Stan rose to any occasion, facing whatever the adversity was with his warm, open personality and a true connection to the outdoors. He was the epitome of what the National Park Service saw as the ideal ranger. In 1948, Stan and Olive opted to leave the snow and cold of Mount Rainier winters for a new assignment closer to Stan's desert roots, Death Valley National Monument. As they had done in Mount Rainier, after moving into the small domicile designated as the Emigrant Ranger Station, the couple began to make friends with the miners and ranchers from around the area. The ranger station was located close to Stovepipe Wells, 
It was the first stopping place for visitors to Death Valley, where they would often find Stan in his ranger uniform there to greet and entertain them with his guitar and story-based songs. Along with his more prosaic duties, which included roaming the vast desert monument in his patrol pickup, rescuing vehicles stuck in the sand or with overheated radiators, chasing lawbreakers, and searching for lost hikers, Stan quickly became a friendly and knowledgeable authority figure respected by all. Also adding to this perception were Stan's regular presentations about the park's natural history, which he would invariably finish up by taking out his guitar and strumming a few tunes for the tourists. There was one rusty nail in what for Stan and Olive was a desert garden of Eden. The officer of the National Park Service in charge of the monument was Superintendent T.R. Goodwin, a stickler for rules and regulations with a curmudgeonly personality, which verged on telling everyone to get off my desert. In 1948, the movie studios discovered Death Valley, including the likes of director John Ford and actors John Wayne, Ward Bond, and Harry Carey Jr., the Spartan facilities at Furnace Creek and Stovepipe Wells were taken over as staging areas. While the National Park Service was pleased with the attention from the studios, Superintendent Goodwin was not going to let any violations of Park Service rules occur on his watch. Goodwin insisted Stan be present as a technical advisor on any movies using Death Valley as a location. Stan chafed a little under the purview of the rigid Goodwin as it went against his easygoing nature. Plus, he found himself quickly bored with what seemed to him to be the tedious and glacial pace of movie making. To keep himself busy during the breaks in filming, he took out his guitar and would entertain the crew with some of the original songs he had written, including a little ditty he had penned a year earlier called Ghost Riders in the Sky. By this time, John Ford and John Wade had their movie in the can, but Stan was almost immediately assigned as the technical advisor on another film. This one starring Randolph Scott, who became convinced Ghost Riders in the Sky could be a hit song. At Scott's urging, Stan committed to try and get his songs produced. In late August, after vetting another film, this one with Gregory Peck, who became fast friends with Stan, the singing ranger took his two weeks of vacation and headed to Hollywood with his guitar on his back and a satchel full of music. Like any newbie trying to break into the business, Stan gained little traction as he made the rounds of music publishers. The only encouragement he found was when one producer took a shine to Ghost Riders in the Sky and said he would see what he could do with it. When his two weeks were up, Stan returned to Death Valley in his ranger duties. He felt the trip to Hollywood had been a bust and that his music wasn't going to have any impact outside entertaining visitors to the park. However, the producer who showed interest in Ghost Riders in the Sky was good to his word. Through a series of machinations, the song found its way to Burl Ives, who released a version of Ghost Riders in the Sky on the Columbia label in February 1949. It attracted some mild attention, enough anyway for Bing Crosby to release a second version a few weeks later on the Decca label. However, neither Burl nor Bing had the golden touch despite their reputations. But in March 1949, a third version, this time recorded by Vaughn Monroe, was released through RCA Victor Records, and suddenly Ghost Riders in the Sky was on fire and climbing the charts. In April, with the song still rising in popularity, Billboard magazine noted Vaughn Monroe's version was selling at a record-breaking pace, causing RCA Victor Records to launch an all-out publicity campaign, including flying a dirigible over New York City, flashing the platter title, and playing the record over a loudspeaker. Ghost Riders in the Sky remained on the Billboard charts for 22 weeks, including time in the lauded number one position. Stan Jones, the singing ranger, was suddenly a sensation. 
There were articles in Time and Newsweek. None other than Superintendent T.R. Goodwin was impressed, mentioning Stan and official dispatches when photographers were sent to Death Valley to complete a photo spread for Life magazine. The biggest boom for the song came on a Saturday night on the hugely popular radio program, Your Hip Parade. The nationally broadcast show played the top 10 songs of the week, and on May 21, 1949, Frank Sinatra introduced Ghost Riders in the Sky as the number one song in the country, and then ripped into it as if it was the song he'd been waiting for all his life to sing. The cowboy song, as Stan referred to it, which had started life being strummed by Stan on the porch of the Death Valley Emigrant Ranger Station, had come a very long way. However, musical success brought a new set of challenges for Stan, who was burning through his annual leave in order to handle all of the demands. A tipping point was fast approaching when Stan would be forced to make a choice between his career with the National Park Service and taking a chance on the uncertain allure of longtime Hollywood success. When RCA announced Vaughn Monroe's recording of Ghost Riders in the Sky had sold an unprecedented 1,800,000 copies in just two months, Stan took it as a sign and resigned from the National Park Service, and, with all his support, headed off to take his chances in Hollywood. Success wasn't long in coming. Gene Autry championed Ghost Riders in the Sky, creating a starring role for himself in a movie based on the song, which of course led Autry to release his own recording of Ghost Riders in the Sky, which was rapidly becoming iconic. Some of Stan's other songs also found a home. John Ford used them on the soundtrack for Wagon Master and Rio Grande, both released in 1950, featuring Harry Carey Jr. Rio Grande would also give Stan his first acting experience as a cavalry sergeant, which led to two more brief roles in Gene Autry's Whirlwind, based on Stan's song of the same name, and Rex Allen's The Last Musketeer. Over the next two years, Stan's songs would be part of six more films, including The Steel Trap, which was the only non-Western. When Harry Carey Jr. was hired for the role of Bill Burnett in The Adventures of Spin and Marty in 1955, he remembered Stan, with whom he'd become friends while working on Rio Grande together. On his recommendation, Stan began writing songs for the show and performing them on camera. Stan was also given a small role as a character created especially for him. However, his presence was always in the background. He seldom had a solo camera shot, and aside from singing, had very few lines to deliver. Stan wrote all of the songs sung by the Triple R campers during the first two seasons of the serial, except for Slewfoot Sue. During the third season, renamed The New Adventures of Ben and Marty, more of Stan's original songs were used, along with those written by others. With his soft-spoken, low-key personality, Stan was well-liked by the folks at Disney and would continue to be associated with the company for many years to come. The Walt Disney Music Company even released an album Stan created as a tribute to the National Park Service, combining his unique mix of spoken storytelling and music. Released in 1958, the cover displayed images of the Grand Canyon and Old Faithful, and the official arrowhead insignia of the National Park Service, a photo of a smiling Stan Jones in his full-dress Park Service uniform, and a message from National Park Service Director Conrad Wirth, who was clearly happy to have the MPS represented by the Singing Ranger. Stan also continued to create songs and music for movie soundtracks, including The Searchers, Westward Ho! The Wagons, and The Great Locomotive Chase, two of which were Disney films. He wrote the song heard over the credits for John Ford's The Horse Soldiers, in which he had an uncredited speaking role as Ulysses S. Grant. 
1960, Stan wrote the music and acted in the three-part Daniel Boone serial. In the same year, he appeared in the film Ten Who Dared with his Spin and Marty co-stars David Stollery and Roy Barcroft. The TV series Cheyenne was fronted by a theme song co-written by Stan, who also appeared on the screen opposite Clint Walker in one episode. His longest reoccurring role on TV was as Deputy Olson in the initial season of the 1957 show Sheriff of Cochise, for which he also wrote the theme song as well as several scripts. In all, Stan wrote well over 200 songs, earning 74 published songwriting credits on ASCAP. His first two albums, Creek and Leather and This Was the West, were released on the Disneyland label in 1958 and 59. Creaking Leather was later re-released as Ghost Riders in the Sky on the Buena Vista label. In 1963, Stan passed away in Los Angeles. He was only 49 years old. His last film, Invitation to a Gunfighter, was released a year after his death. Ghost Riders in the Sky has become one of the most recorded songs of all time, performed in almost every conceivable musical genre. Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, the Boston Pops, Elvis, the Norman Luboff Choir, the Brothers Four, and Lawrence Welk all have popular versions. However, one of the most unusual versions was performed by the Australian alt-rock band Spiderbait for the 2007 Marvel live-action movie based on the Ghost Rider comic book. It's a fantastic rock and roll version that has racked up over 7 million hits on YouTube. There are two versions of how Stan came to compose his best-remembered song. One states he was out riding when a storm came up, and he was impressed by the clouds scudding across the sky that he imagined resembled men on horseback. The second, and the one I think most likely, refers to Stan telling a friend the idea for the song was sparked by a ghost story he remembered being told by an old cowboy when he was 12 years old. Most sources agree the story the old cowhand spun was based on the legend about a spooky tableland in Crosby County, Texas, known as Stampede Mesa. In the fall of 1889, a trail boss called Sawyer was taking a herd of about a thousand head north to the railroads in Kansas. One night, he and his cowboys were looking for a place to camp when they spotted a nester, or a homesteader, not associated with the crew, cutting out a few head at the back of the herd. When confronted, the man insisted that as Sawyer's herd passed by his little spread, some unbranded cattle from his herd had wandered over and mingled with Sawyer's, and he was simply reclaiming his mavericks. Sawyer was tired, dusty, and cranky, as were his crew, and more importantly, his herd. Stan told the cowboy that he'd have to wait until morning to cut his few head out of the herd. He was ready to camp for the night, and there was a storm coming up, one of those awesome displays of lightning, thunder, wind, and rain that bedevil the Texas Plains sometimes. The cowhand blustered that all Sawyer was doing was trying to steal his pitiful little steers, but gave up when Sawyer flashed a gun at him. Sawyer and his crew bedded down the cattle atop a little mesa, sweet grass on the flat and sweet water below. The cattle settled down. Sawyer put a few hands on guard duty, and the others got some sleep they would rise to take a turn later. The storm did come, and in the midst of it, the herd stampeded, not toward the sweet drinking water below, but right toward the cliffs on the other side. In the confusion, two of Sawyer's men and 700 head of cattle were killed, dashed to death on the rocks below. When they finally got the herd turned, Sawyer asked what the hell stampeded them damn steers. One of the cowboys, tired and dazed and broken up over the deaths of his fellow herdsmen, said that he wouldn't swear to it, but he thought he'd seen that rustler, that was the word he used, rustler, 
waving a blanket and shouting at the back of the herd, still trying deep in the night to cut out those few scraggly mavericks he claimed were his. Morning wasn't long coming, and Sawyer and his men went out after the nester turned rustler. Capturing him, they tied him to his saddle, and, after blindfolding him and his horse, gave the terrified animal a hard slap on the rump and drove both rider and mount over the cliffs on the mesa, leaving them to die alongside Sawyer's dead steers and cowhands. Without remorse, Sawyer then rounded up his remaining 300 head and hit the trail again. The next season, a trail boss bedded down a herd atop the same mesa. It was the biggest mistake of his life. That night, there was no storm rolling across the skies, yet in the wee hours, the herd stampeded. Nearly the entire herd and a few more cowboys were lost. There was no explanation for this sudden deadly panic. Word spread, and thereafter, the little table with the sweet grass on top and the sweet water below, now given the ominous nickname Stampede Mesa, was avoided by the drovers. Still, there were always a few who couldn't resist the grass and water. Each herd that bedded down there overnight stampeded and left its bones and those of a few more cowboys on the rocks below. Some of those cowboys, who weren't swept to their deaths, reported that just when the herd broke loose, they saw a stranger on horseback, waving a blanket over his head and shouting, riding up on the backs of the herd, spooking them and causing them to stampede the others. Sometimes, they also reported seeing other strangers on horseback, racing desperately around the panicked herd, trying to turn them back before they ran over the cliff. They never succeeded. Eventually, even the most skeptical trail bosses learned not to mess with the vengeful Nestor and his ghostly counterparts atop Stampede Mesa. However, the days of cattle drives were coming to an end as railroads were being built across Texas, so the need to overnight a herd atop the haunted Mesa was made obsolete. But the story of Sawyer's herd and the Nestor he and his cowboys drove over the cliffs has never been forgotten, especially in Stan Jones' song, Ghost Riders in the Sky. Thanks for listening to this bonus speed listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast. Remember to check out our website at sixgunjustice.com for regularly updated reviews, articles, and interviews from the best of the Western wordslingers. Prior Six Gun Justice podcast episodes, Six Gun Justice speed listen installments, and Six Gun Justice conversations are available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Till next time. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and stay off Stampede Mesa. Adios. I'm out of here. Let's ride.